Welcome to the Evolution CBS podcast, where we discuss all things mergers and acquisitions. If you're a company owner and you want to learn more about how to sell your business for a premium value, then this is the podcast for you. Welcome to the next in our Evolution podcast. Today, we're going to be talking to a long-standing, trusted and professional law firm that we work with on multiple occasions. Um, the partner I'm talking to today is a guy called Mang Ai, who is the head of their commercial team now, their m and team now. He and I have worked together on multiple cross-border transactions, and that's the piece that we want to talk about today. Increasingly, as we find ourselves talking to investors and acquirers for our clients' business based in other territories, other continents, um, it's important that we work with a firm of lawyers that are not only highly professional, hugely pragmatic, but also have the depth and breadth of capability to be able to work with us and our clients to represent them in those cross-border transactions and for our clients. Increasingly, what we find, and we've experienced this over the years, but I wanted to get the chance to talk about it specifically today, is the extent to which we're finding and attracting international acquirers and investors for businesses and you and I have experienced a couple of times that can bring challenges with it both in terms of the legalities the technical stuff that you do so well yep. but also the cultural and people things so when we were thinking about topics that our listeners our clients might might be interested in and might want to understand more about our take was listen let's get Maung in because he's worked on a number of these cross-border transactions with international acquirers from the US from Europe from Asia in terms of what we're doing and just get the chance to kick around some of the challenges that we find and how you mitigate those challenges and overcome those challenges to help us deliver something so successful for our clients yeah I think <clears throat> Thanks, Stephen. I, th I think the topic is really relevant because these days the world's getting smaller and I think lots of people, lots of businesses have access to international markets. Mm. So if you want to start a new product line in a different country, you want to expand your business, now is easier than ever. Mm. There are obviously challenges to be overcome. In terms, you, know, you spoke about legal challenges and cultural challenges, but... People want and expect access to global markets mm. so they can grow their business. So, yeah, really, really relevant topic at the moment. So, in my head, one of the transactions that was most recent, actually, uh, was the transaction we did, actually, for a UK business uh, where we work with them. And they, they do some really clever stuff in clean room space mm. in terms of what they do. So, really nice business. Uh, very sharp edge in terms of their design and technical capabilities. They weren't... They weren't um, a tech business or a software business per se, but very high-level technical design for critical environments, whether it's pharmaceutical or defence or aviation or otherwise. Now, in that situation, you'll recall, because we worked on that business over, over a period of months, getting on for a year, there was a lot of international interest. So we had, we had European investors keen to work with that business and a Franco-German kind of arrangement in terms of where they were. But also, and in the end, the, the business that won through, both culturally and in terms of the way in which the future opportunity they offered to our clients' business, was a business from the Americas. And, and, and I remember that very specifically because there were challenges associated with that, certainly from where I was sat wearing the M&A advisory hat. Um, but it was interesting that they were 
they approached us in the first place and were prepared to engage in the conversation from, as I remember it loosely, an East Coast financial investor, so a private equity investor essentially, representing a West Coast comparable business in the clean room manufacturing fabrication space actually, interested in buying a relatively small UK-based design and engineering business in that space. So in your experience, that level of international interest on on a, a lower mid-tier scale business here in the UK, is that unusual or do you see that happening on a regular basis, Mal? I think increasingly I'm seeing that businesses in England are becoming very, very attractive to international acquirers, private equity mainly, across the globe. So... You know, I, I do a lot of work with private equity in the, the States. Mm-hmm. And that's on both sides. That's acting for companies in the in, in the UK who are selling yeah. and also acting as UK counsel yeah. to, you know, US private equity funds who want to invest in the UK. Okay, okay. Get, get a lot of interest from the Middle East and from the Far East. I think... The UK is very attractive. It's still a very attractive jurisdiction for the rule of law, for all sorts of reasons. Um, London is still seen as a great financial centre, but actually the whole of the UK is opening up to international investment. Uh, It's becoming very attractive. So it's not a surprise that interest is picking up internationally. There's an obtuse part to that as well, if I remember correctly, from the early conversations, because, you you know, we pre-qualify any interested party on behalf of one of our clients in terms of what we do. And I remember the conversation specifically with the with the East Coast financial investor in terms of what they were doing. And I remember talking to them about why, why they were interested in, in my client's business, in our client's business in terms of what we're doing. And it was fascinating because their take was they did have that interest in the UK market, particularly around manufacturing, engineering excellence and everything associated with it. And they saw the opportunity in the UK market per se, as a standalone entity surrounded by water as we are here. But they also did associate having a footprint in the UK as a stepping stone towards giving them a footprint in Europe. And I remember going back when you and I were working on transactions in Brexit days in terms of what we were doing, musing about the extent to which us leaving the European Union formally would cut off the ties with Europe, but this that that particular transaction we're we're talking chatting about now, that was an integral part of the acquirer's logic. It was everything you say about the UK being attractive, about giving them a presence here and giving them access to our market, and they particularly recognised investment in pharma and science here in the UK. So huge opportunity for them. But they also had the note to it that was around. And it's a step nearer Western Europe in terms of where we go. So maybe that would give them the ability to, for the next expansion to be into Western Europe in terms of where to run. Yeah, and it's still the case that, you know, we, we haven't seen a tail off of business or in um, M&A transactions since, since Brexit. Mm. And I, I think there are challenges to be overcome in terms of the legal framework broadly. You know, we still take a lot from Europe. Um, but... Yeah, there, there are challenges to, challenges to be overcome, but they're not insurmountable. Okay. And, and, you know, the UK is still seen as a stepping stone to, to Europe. Um. So 
on the specifics, I, I mean, I recall the two things that stuck in my mind about dealing with the the guys from America. The first was the practical part, and this is just a Brit speaking now. Uh, there's this time gap thing between East Coast and West Coast in the UK. And uh, I, I would have to say, I think the gloss of early evening, late evening calls to match the time zones probably wore off quite quickly. Yes, apart that agreed. One. That's just a practical point. There was also a cultural point there in terms of East Coast very businesslike in terms of their approach. Very user-friendly, but very businesslike and focused on what they were doing. West Coast, a lot softer. So a lot of the conversations with the with the, the background entity, effectively, that was being supported by the financial investor, a lot of their conversations were around culture and people and the way in which they worked. And that became an important decider, actually, for our client in terms of his decision that that was the right fit for his business. I also remember, from a financial perspective, some interesting challenges with the, with the American-based financial DD um, advisor and some some of the loops we got stuck into there around tax and accounting conventions and, and the like. From a legal perspective, if I remember correctly, there was both UK and US counsel involved in the conversation. How does that manifest itself when you're trying to work your way through and negotiate that, that part of the jigsaw for our client? It's, it's an interesting point because the way I see it, you know, when, when you're when you're doing international transactions, and I, I had my first experience of an international transaction with a Japanese acquirer in 2010, which was a real eye-opener in terms of culture, but mm-hmm. I, I, I break down um, the, the, the components of an international transaction into the legal issues, which mm-hmm. can vary greatly from jurisdiction to jurisdiction. Yeah. Yeah, and you've touched on some of them mm. uh, already. We'll come back um, to that in a moment with Asia, if we may. Yeah, mm. yeah, sorry. Um, but, uh, and the softer skills. Mm. And I, I think, you know, with the UK, certain parts of Europe and the US, we are very kind of low context. So we say things as we mean them. Yeah. And there's no kind of hidden meaning. If, we, if, we, if we're upset by something, we will tell someone that they've upset us whereas in other jurisdictions in other countries it's more about what you don't say than what you do say which i find a very interesting dynamic when working in these transactions in this particular transaction that we were both working on there were um the legal issues were not as um, prevalent as there would have been had we been acting with um with an acquirer of for example, from you know Asia or the Far East. Yeah, yeah. But we still had some nuances that had mm. to be ironed out. And to, to your point, ordinarily you would have, you would expect uh, an overseas acquirer to appoint local counsel mm. because it's impossible to know all the legal nuances and, mm. and 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 how things work in another jurisdiction without engaging someone on the ground there, mm. which which they did. Mm. They still because we had a lot of direct contact with them. They still raised a number of queries around specific legal issues. And to give you one example, I think I remember there was a lot of conversation around tax and the fact that um, in the in England we have a distinction between the tax covenant yeah. being a tax indemnity yep. mm-hmm. and tax warranties, and they're mm-hmm. two sort of separate things. And the tax warranties would usually be subject to claim thresholds, mm-hmm. which in the US they said, look, in the US we don't have this. Yeah. So there had to be a conversation about the fact that, you know, they already had a tax covenant that was cover- covering mm. them and they were secure there and then they understood. Mm. 
from my memory, we similarly had an issue around how debt was dealt with, yeah. particular debt was dealt with, either pre-completion or post-completion. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm smiling broadly because I, I, I remember, you're very polite, I, I remember some interesting debate about the US and UK banking and financial systems as, as well on the cusp of completion in terms of where is the money? Is it somewhere in the Atlantic? Is it over the Atlantic or has it finally arrived in the UK? I remember the challenge there too. That, that's true. And, <laughs> and uh, I think our, our client at the time, I mean, I, I think there was a... He had used a coronavirus loan or something Correct, like that. Correct, yeah, yeah. And, and, yeah. and they, the, the U.S. acquirer wanted some comfort that, that there was plenty of cash in the company to, to, yeah. to, to, to repay the loan. That wasn't the issue. Mm. Um, they, they were just uncomfortable that the security for that loan was sitting in the company. And, and, and actually, that was compounded by the fact the U.S. clearly experienced COVID and the pandemic in, in, in the similar way, perhaps, that we did here in the U.K., but the approach to the way Siebel's, sorry, the, the business interruption loan schemes were dealt with here in the UK was quite different to the way that it was dealt with in the US. If I remember correctly, part of the problem was the US entities didn't quite get why we took the view we did over here because they had a slightly different perspective on how that should be unravelled, if you like, post event. Yeah, that, that, that's true. And also they have... This particular acquirer had very uh, a very different experience of dealing with banks in the US. So he was very much of the opinion, of, you know, I, I tell them what to do and they will do it. And if I need something, I will I will tell them and they will give it to me. Yeah. And here, of course, the approach that certainly I took, yeah. know, being very polite and yeah. requesting, it wasn't. It, it, it didn't sit well with, with his preferred approach. I, I remember smiling at the point at which we were being asked to very politely to instruct one of the large UK banks just to do it precisely as requ requested and on the day requested. And I remember them struggling to understand how it wouldn't be quite that straightforward to be able to instruct in that way. No, it was a smile moment perhaps uh, after the event. And, and this is part of you know the beauty, if, if you want, of international transactions is that yeah. you have to appreciate what people are used to dealing with. And, and if if you have a blinkered view and you say, well, this is the way it's done here and that's the way it's got yeah, to be done, yeah. you're going to annoy a lot of people. The transaction's not going to progress. Everyone's looking to achieve the same objective, to yeah. sell the company, to join forces, to make the, the business a, a success. Mm. And so you have to just have that in your mind and be, yeah. be aware of those differences. And, and again, I, I have a, a further thought on that one. An expression you and I use multiple times, having worked around each other for a number of years. Putting yourself in the other person's chair. So understanding why they are asking the question in that way and what's behind it. And again, in my mind, as I'm picturing the conversations now, I remember a debate around the subtle differences between the accounting conventions in the US and here. So US gap versus UK okay, gap. Yeah. And the treatment of of accruals and prepayments under the two, and I, I I remember there was a danger the debate could have got quite animated in terms of the extent to which U.S. gap was being proposed as the way it is done, um, and trying to explain politely, it's very similar to what we do here in the U.K., but there are some subtle differences between them, and that could have become a flashpoint for us, but actually the. The concept, putting yourself in the other person's chair, understanding why they're asking that question in that way and helping them to understand why we're responding 
perhaps in what might feel a slightly obtuse way in terms of what we're saying, actually prevails, and I know having worked with you, say, multiple times, being able to take that view, sit at the other side of the table metaphorically, and understand why the issue is being raised and how, therefore, you should deal with it actually really helps. Yeah, and and, and the the sad thing about, I I think, COVID is when when you have those disagreements pre-COVID, depending on distance. I mean, international. when you're dealing with international acquirers, you spoke about time differences when, when, when on calls, but, you know, actually resolving things by sitting in the same room as each other, looking a person in the eye and saying, look, I can see you're upset about this or we have a disagreement about that. Mm. Let's work it through. Mm. COVID really impacted that because it made it difficult for people to travel, people couldn't get anywhere. And it and so that aspect of being able to resolve things, particularly mm. if you're dealing with someone, you know, an acquirer in Europe, for example, or, yeah. or a seller in Europe, and you can easily hop on the flight and, you know, in a day have a meeting and resolve issues. Mm. It, it, ha- it hampered that. And I think the greater the distance, and th- these are some of the things I think sellers need to think about mm. when looking at um, you know, national businesses, uh, acquirers in their own country versus international acquirers. And I think there's a lot of benefit for um, dealing with international acquirers. They can bring, uh, a- 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 and whether they're trade or whether they're mm. private equity, mm. et cetera, which obviously we can come on, come to. Um, but but it, it it's so useful to be able to and, and I think Zoom helped because yeah. we had a lot of Zoom calls um, over a lot of things, but actually it worked mm. because had we not had Zoom or had we not had Teams or or, or, or whatever the the preferred method of uh, vid- video conferencing was, we would be on the phone. We wouldn't be able to see expressions. We wouldn't be able to read body language. We, yeah. we wouldn't be able to see if someone was uncomfortable with ha- with something that had been proposed. Mm. So, yeah, it's with international acquisitions and sales, mm. there's a whole other layer of complexity that gets added. The, the cultural piece, let, let me come back to that, but let me, let me fast track back to a conversation we've touched on um, with a client of ours where, again, you, you work with us, and the acquirer was, was based in Asia. Um, and, and amazing transaction, and again, I, I know our clients were delighted with the work that, that you did with us there in terms of what we've done not necessarily a complex transaction but but made slightly more complex because the acquirer was publicly listed in the country in which they were domiciled Um, and there were some interesting cultural challenges there because in the country in question the continent in question the the cultural approach to things was 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 quite patriarchal in terms of the way that it operated and and therefore the way in which the deal team worked with us early in the transaction interestingly they came to us so they spent a lot of time in the uk really competent and highly professional female advisor leading that team with us here in the uk and fronting the conversations with our collective clients in that situation when we got nearer to the point of due diligence and then entered the formal due diligence, focus switched back to the parent company and to this patriarchal environment. And and there were challenges in that, one of which was that this very highly competent and professional lead advisory um, uh, executive in the deal team had to step back because it came into the patriarchal team here over in their parent company 
country, sorry. Um, and, and the structure there was, was very, very different to what we'd experienced. Now, that sticks in my mind for a number of reasons. I also remember over the course of the weekend that those negotiations took place because their view of working hours and weekend was very different to ours in terms of what we saw. I remember a particular point where a lawyer I was working very closely with at the time was WhatsApping in with us over the course of a Sunday trying to get the fine detail of some of those elements resolved with the legal team that were present in the room with us in the country, whereas you were over in the UK. Talk me through that a bit in terms of some of the challenges that came there with both cultural but also very different jurisdictions in terms of the way the two countries operated. Yeah, and I, I touched on this before. Um, there are certain, I, I think, natural synergies with, for example, um, you know, England and the US and certain countries in Europe. When when you work your way east, and you know, I mentioned, you know, we've mm. done deals in the Middle East, uh, um, all over Asia, whether it's India or, or Japan or mm. China, and and the cultural differences um, increase. And, and I mentioned high-context and low-context countries, and the further east you go, the higher the context is, as in it's, it's more about mm. what's not said, but also the culture's different. You men mentioned some of the, the countries are very patriarchal in the mm. way they, mm. they deal with things. And so I, I, I think you navigated, you know, I, I remember you, you talking to me about the meetings, and you navigated that aspect in incredibly. And I think had there been a less proficient advisor or an advisor that didn't have the international experience that you had, you know, at best you could have offended someone mm, yeah. and at worst you could have lost the deal for the client mm. um, simply by saying, well, this is not acceptable or mm. I, I, I want it done this way mm. or, you know, you, what, what are you doing in this situation? So that, 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 that challenge, you know, it, it can't be underestimated. You have to be really... I, I, I'm going to ask you, I'm going to interrupt briefly and ask you to hold that thought there. Yeah. Don't don't lose your thread because I just have to come back to this. I remember the conversation with the, with the lead male advisor in country, effectively, at the time we were organising the site visit to the parent country. And I remember having a conversation around both the timing of that event and also the team that we were going to take with us. And I remember chatting through with him the way we proposed approaching that. And I can remember this silence on the call um, where he was reflecting. And the question I was asked was, your client, so it's the female shareholder you're bringing with you. Yes, that's right. It would be appropriate in this situation because the, the, the male of the husband and wife team, as it turned out, actually wasn't able to join. Um, I, I think it would be more appropriate for the male shareholder to join us, if that's okay. And I remember at the time, and again, context, smiling and saying, would you like to explain that to my client? Or it's probably better that I, no, actually, let's let her be the lead in that conversation, please. So again, interesting cultural point. They would not, not in a million years, would they have wanted to cause offence. No. But to them, it was counterintuitive. Surely the husband would come to that session and he would make the decisions. It was very different. Sorry, I interrupted your, no, your, no, your I mean, flow there. That, that's ex exactly the point. I mean, and you, you have to you know, be very careful with navigating those situations. So there's that, that kind of cultural side. Then, then we flip to the legal aspects. Mm. And, you know, th there are significant challenges when two jurisdictions are, are very different in terms of how they um, draft documents, how mm. they view certain legal aspects. Um, 
just one example. I, I, you know, when 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 dealing with transactions where cash is paid up up front, Mm. or there's the the consideration is paid all up front, um, quite often a buyer will say, "Look, we have concerns that the sellers may just you know spend the cash, and we have warranties that we need to stand behind. That they need to stand behind. We may have some indemnities that they need to stand behind. So we need some comfort or security." And they'll usually ask for an escrow uh, for that. Yeah. Um, this particular transaction, that, that that wasn't the case, and you know, our, our clients had, uh, you know, were retaining interest in in, in the company going forwards as well. Um, dealing with uh, an overseas buyer does open you up as a seller to that sort of request, and it's something you have to be prepared prepared for. And we, you know, you you and I know we went back and forth on whether it was necessary to have quite a substantial escrow pot for things that had the acquirer been a UK acquirer, yeah. probably wouldn't have asked for. Um, that's one of the, I, I wouldn't say it's it's a con, it's it's a consideration that you need to take into account when, when dealing with an overseas acquirer. But wasn't there, there was also a challenge, if I remember correctly, around restrictive covenants and the extent to which individuals who were party, subject to the transaction, the length of time for which they could be locked in or for which the restrictions could apply. And I remember a particularly awkward conversation around their insistence it had to be for a period of x years which for us in the uk or europe would have been seen as way too restrictive and unreasonable do i recall that correctly yeah i think thinking about it there are a couple of issues like that so there was the issue on restrictive covenants that i think they wanted a very very long time Mm. long, long time period for which would would have almost certainly been unenforceable uh, in the UK, um, a similar issue, if I recall correctly, is that for um, members of the management team who were staying on, they wanted a very short notice period compared to the restrictions in the employment contract or yeah. the service agreement. And there was a a conversation that we had around security yes. for the members of manage- the management team who were staying on. Mm. Um, but I, I think the position was that even their, their sort of top chief executive was on the same Correct. very short notice Correct, period. Yeah. And, and that was something that we had to understand and we had to work with. Mm. They were not going to extend the notice period to six months or 12 months or anything like that, despite the position being senior. Mm. So the, these challenges, I mean, it's, it, it's, 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 it's interesting to deal with. Yeah, and, and, and challenging, as you say, because actually I, I do remember that conversation and I, I remember the line that was drawn by the overseas lawyers, which was simplistically, that's the way we do it. Yeah, <laughs> that's the way we do it. And, you know, sometimes, you know, that, that's, what you have to, that's what you have to work with. The, the other challenge that comes with working with um, jurisdictions that are, are, are very different is, I think, for lawyers to try and make the transaction documents, the SPA, very clear and concise. And I remember this being a particular challenge for both sides, both sets of lawyers, because you're trying to convey a message or, you, or an idea or you're trying to provide an element of security or comfort. And in the back of your mind, you have to think about if things 
go to court if um, things take a turn for the worst and someone has to look at what we have written mm. um, and understand it, are, will they be able to understand it very clearly? Mm. So from a practical point, even the drafting, which mm. I, I guess you take for granted when dealing with domestic businesses in the UK, mm. you, can't, you can't take for granted and you have to be very, very specific about what you mean in certain clauses. And, and again, as a spin-off from that, and just as a, as a side note, over the, over the last couple of months or so, I've found myself in uh, at least two Western European countries with, on behalf of, 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 of a client, different clients actually, on, on, on the occasions in question, one of which I was, I was across in the Nordics. Uh, and and very impressed at the way actually to them English to the Nordic people the, the English language is as much a first language as their their native tongue without any problem at all so no no issue at all there. Now, I was also in Italy, um, which is which is very very similar and so a lot warmer but, but very very similar but quite different in the 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 patriarch of the potential acquirer in Italy barely spoke a word of English. And the assumption was that we would interpret to or from what he wanted to say. And that was fascinating in terms of understanding a conversation because you have our principles talking to their principles with interpreters in between time. And there's time lag as, as, as the individuals are talking and then it's being translated back. Fascinating. I have, I have one more question that I wanted to get to if I, if I can. And it's, a, it's about mixed border transactions and again going back a little bit further i remember a transaction we worked on a few years ago with a software business here in the uk and the short story was in the end very highly successful transaction for our clients delighted they were delighted with the outcome and have subsequently resold that business so it's moved on through its lifetime very successfully in terms of where they've gone but at the time we dealt with them if i remember correctly there was a uk based private equity firm who were the primary investor that collaborated with in partnership a US equity firm that operated and that was part of the driver because they wanted access into the US and so the judgment call that the UK financial investor the private equity firm made was they could do with boots on the ground in America that understood US legislation and could give representation there so there were two quite substantive private equity firms both party to the transaction can talk a little bit around what complexity that brought to the transaction in terms of where we were yeah i I remember that transaction well because you know it it was a very a a very good outcome for our clients the the clients had a um a really really good business and um a really interesting business with lots of potential and as you say they've gone on and and sold since then um and this is a challenge that I think, you know, there's two main challenges that price applies in this situation. One is is the fact that, you know, private equity, one of the challenges is they need to fundraise. Mm. So if it's a, a trade buyer, um, normally the cash will be generated from the trading operations. But yeah. with private equity, you have firms that have their own pot mm. and you have firms that actually have to go back and fundraise. And yeah. there was an element of that here. Yeah, yeah I remember. So, so that, that is a challenge in in itself because you have to manage that process with your clients. You have to see, you know, what because it adds a layer of complexity because not only are you satisfied, you're trying to satisfy the lead private equity firm, mm. you have to also satisfy yeah. one or two other mm. funders who may have their own criteria, yeah, I remember. their yeah. own questions, their own nuances that you have to think about. And so it does present a challenge. I mean, we successfully overcame that, but I think it was due to 
the pragmatism of all the parties involved, and particularly the private equity firms. They were very experienced, mm. and they managed to pull everything together. But it, 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 ca it can be a challenge, particularly if there is disconnect between the primary uh, fund mm. and its funders. Mm. And sometimes, and you and I have come, come across this on multiple occasions, where they say, this is what our funders need, mm. this is what our funders want, yeah. this is a criteria to, for us to raise the funds. You either can take it, or mm. you can't, and, and then we might not be able to, to do the deal. Mm. And that potentially could be one of the downsides of, of working with private equity, mm. or something that you need to bear in mind as that, that could happen. And if I remember correctly, again, as a, as a postscript to that transaction, having navigated our way through those challenges in terms of what we'd seen, again, the interaction between the respective banking and financial systems, if I remember correctly, led to some last-minute heart-stopping moments in terms of where the funds were and how that was going to work. Do I remember that correctly? Yeah, I think I think it's always a challenge when dealing with overseas businesses. Um, and, and, and actually, um, going back to one of the deals we did in the Far East just for a second, digressing, usually in, in the UK when we deal with the, the flow of funds, mm. um, solicitors' uh, client accounts are used and we give undertakings to hold fees to order, yeah. hold funds yeah. to order and, and so on. But in many jurisdictions, they don't work like that. And the money goes directly from buyer through to the sellers yeah. without the solicitors or the lawyers ever touching the funds. Mm. So there is a heart-stopping moment when you complete the transaction <laughs> and you're frantically calling your client say, have you got the money? Yeah. Has the money been yeah. sent? Have you got the money? Have you got the money? And obviously a relief when they do, but it's it can be get hairy at times. And, and, and another anecdote, because I think, I think we've probably done our time thank you but I, I have another picture in my mind which maybe is a conversation for another day but I remember another transaction we worked on together where if I remember correctly the challenge was getting the again loosely Asian one of the Asian based shareholders to cycle to the nearest fax machine to be able to evidence that he'd signed a document to this was a minority share to enable us to complete. Do I remember that correctly as well? Or is that another day? No, uh, that, that's probably a longer conversation. But I think the short the short story is we had to get a lawyer to um, go out into the jungle in Malaysia. I believe so. to, um, to to get instructions to transfer funds to a shareholder who lived there and was non English speaking. Non English speaking, yes. and he was not wasn't didn't have any email uh, accounts wasn't on social media, there was no yeah. way of contacting him, so he had to be visited to actually just obtain his bank details and verify that he was the person entitled to the funds in the jungle in Malaysia, yeah. Amazing story for another day. Thank you, man. Much appreciated. Thanks, Steve. Thank you for listening to the Evolution CBS podcast. You can follow us on LinkedIn and visit our website, www.evolutioncbs.co.uk, where you can subscribe to our email newsletter, get further details of our transactions, read the blogs we regularly publish, and learn about the free business owner masterclasses that we run in London and elsewhere in England. Thanks again.